0: Welcome to the Forecast Direct podcast. I'm Leo Feller, senior economist at UCLA Anderson School of Management. And our guest today is Stuart Gabriel, a distinguished professor of finance at UCLA Anderson and the director of the UCLA Zyman Center for Real Estate. Stuart, welcome to the program. Thank you, Leo. So there's a lot going on in the world right now, uh, but I'd like us to focus specifically on housing markets. Uh, And so we've seen home prices increase very rapidly during the pandemic. And now we're seeing rent starting to increase very rapidly. What's behind these increases? And are these increases sustainable?
1: Uh, we don't believe the increases are sustainable because they've been so sharp and it would be surprising if they were sustainable. But that doesn't mean that house prices are either gonna stop increasing or gonna fall or fall radically. The modal forecast is for even double digit rates of house price increases in the current calendar year. So that might suggest some cooling, but not a lot. Uh, We'll see what the events of the year bring with respect to Fed tightening and uh, geopolitical events and all the rest, but that notwithstanding, there were fundamental factors that uh, drove house prices up. And those fundamental factors in some respects are still present. Uh, Let me just say a word or two about what those factors might be. Uh, Firstly, as is evident to all, we've had uh, near record low uh, interest rates and similarly with respect to mortgage interest rates so that housing credit has been readily available and it's been available uh, at bargain basement prices. And that's certainly been a, a factor that's fueled the demand for housing. The demand for housing has been fueled in a context of inadequate supply in a context of inadequate inadequate production and in a context of high levels of local regulation of housing supply. And all of those elements are changing and maybe Leo, we can talk a little bit about that uh, later in our conversation. But getting back to housing demand in the context of this inadequate supply, we see demographic factors, we see pandemic factors, we see locational factors, we see changes in taste We see a whole variety of factors that are driving the housing demand. With respect to demographics, we see the the coming of age of millennials, perhaps the uh, belated coming of age of millennials, and we see very sharp increases in home ownership and home purchase on the part of millennials, and they were delayed in moving into home ownership. With respect to the pandemic, and you, Leo, have written about this uh, Uh, at some length in your work at the forecast, we saw a shift during the pandemic from service-related spending to durable-related spending and housing was among the most durable of the durables. And of course, during the pandemic, people wanted space rather than density. And we saw a substitution of, of housing in suburbs and housing in areas where there was more space Uh, more pandemic related safety, more room for work at home activity, et cetera, uh, from smaller denser units in what were largely shut down uh, downtown areas. So uh, we saw a shift, not only in demand for housing, but in the location of demand for housing and by whom. And after a number of decades of very sharp Increase in demand for housing in vibrant downtowns. We saw downtowns go dark, so to speak, in the context of service shutdown, in the context of pandemic, and we've seen suburbs come back alive. Uh, I happen to be, you know, at a place in my life where I have lived for many years in in a suburban part of LA, and my neighborhood is absolutely. Being revitalized at the moment, as are many other suburban neighborhoods, and and this goes not only for suburbs, but it also goes for ex- exurbia, in other words, areas beyond the suburbs, and it goes for movements across state lines. But we've also, uh, with... seen,
0: we've also seen inner cities come roaring back, right? So you've seen rents increase in Manhattan. You've seen rents increase in you know, downtown Chicago uh, and downtown LA, you know, San Francisco, a little bit delayed, but you've seen rent started, starting to go back up there. So are you starting to get a shift of people back towards these areas?
1: I would say yes, but not back to the equilibrium where we were situated pre-pandemic in the sense that uh, we have many factors at play. Of course, one of, one of those factors is a work from home factor And that's a factor that's difficult to evaluate in terms of the sort of longevity of that factor, but there seems to be some sustainability of work from home, some expectation on the part of much of corporate America that employees will work at home certain number of days of the week, if not permanently or with lots of choice with respect to that flexibility. And that of course means people can literally live and work in different places, So they can live in Tahoe and work in the Bay Area and just go to work virtually, that kind of thing. And it also means a a change in the housing characteristics that are required by work at home Uh, people in the sense that they need more space. They need space for a desk, a desk away from the kids, et cetera. And so major home builders are factoring this into their plans for new housing construction but it also, again, is part of a demand for a larger suburban or exurban housing unit, uh, potentially in an area of lower housing costs. And clearly, uh, many households could not get to such a unit in the very expensive uh, CBDs of San Francisco or LA or New York. Do you
0: think we've seen this movement already from uh, concentrated urban areas to the suburbs to ex <coughs> play itself out? uh, Or is there still more of this movement that's likely to happen uh, in the coming years?
1: I think uh, with evolution in technology, with evolution in in where and how people work, and with the unevenness of house prices and housing affordability across the nation, I think there's plenty of this yet to come. We're seeing the emergence of all kinds of tertiary centers uh, in, with respect to renewed popularity. We're seeing movement uh, across demographic groups, which is very interesting. The baby boomers, people of my age are, are now on the move. We've seen this, this wave of early retirements, and many of those folks are on the move. We've seen millennials come into home ownership, and they're on the move. So, So there's a lot of potentiality with respect to this spreading out of housing to be on rise and fall of metropolitan areas, arbitrage, if you will, of house prices of very expensive areas. I mean, LA is just so utterly expensive that it's putting itself out of the market for firm locations, for employment development and all the rest. And I don't need to tell you that, Leo, you're a, a, a very deep student of all this stuff.
0: Well, we are, I mean, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, Jerry Nicholsberg, wrote about how LA is becoming relatively uh, less expensive because even though house prices are so expensive in LA, they have increased by so much more in places like Austin and Boise and Fresno, so that in relative terms, LA ends up looking more attractive.
1: Uh, and and I've talked to Jerry about that research, and you and, um, certainly correct in terms of the, the factual content. Con- tend to that research. The question is, does that relative affordability gain help LA adequately in the context of an absolute lack of affordability? Our our nominal affordability is so bad that I'm not sure how much that relative gain helps us.
0: So with a little bit of a pivot here, we started seeing mortgage rates go up. They're now above 4% for 30-year fixed rate mortgages. How do you see that affecting the housing market?
1: Well, pre-Putin uh, invasion of the Ukraine, uh, back in the old days, so to speak, in the days of the old world order, uh, we were expecting maybe three, four, you know the number better than I do, Leo, uh, Fed tightenings, This would be tightening on the short end of the yield curve, coupled with uh, other machinations of monetary policy that relate to the balance sheet that would certainly work to push up the federal, excuse me, the treasury yield curve at the short end of the curve, maybe uh, be reflected in a bit of flattening of the curve and also push up mortgage interest rates all along the curve from short rates that relate to arms that are priced off of one-year treasuries, three-year treasuries, et cetera, to the long rates that are priced off of 10-year treasuries. Um, and, and in general, the expectation is that the higher housing finance costs are gonna work to slow the housing market. They're gonna take some bite out of housing demand. And they're part and parcel to the comment that we made earlier that uh, while we continue to expect ongoing increase in in house prices, we believe this increase in house prices will be slowed by the tightening of monetary policy. So that's the the kind of pre-Ukraine version of the answer. The post-Ukraine version of the answer, I believe at least at this moment, is somewhat more complicated because in the wake of this major uh, war in Central Europe, you know, something we haven't seen since the end of World War II, et cetera, uh, there's all sorts of economic manifestations that can affect what we call the treasury yield curve, the, the curve of yield by duration of of Treasury securities and how that, in turn, affects mortgage interest rates. And just to provide some example of that, uh, we could have more inflationary impetus in the US economy, at least in the short run, uh, owing to the combination of factors that uh, pertain to this war, including upward movement in oil prices, Uh, maybe some sanction related effect, et cetera. Although I know the Biden administration is very careful with respect to who they're sanctioning, with respect to any domestic economic fallout, they're trying to minimize that. But that notwithstanding, we could see some pressures for additional upward movement in rates, at least in certain parts of the yield curve. The flip side of that is that, things get ugly enough out there and certainly they've gotten quite ugly with equity markets recently. We anticipate and have seen some flight to quality, flight to the purchase of US government treasury securities, which ultimately can have a damping effect on rates, particularly at the long end of the yield curve. So one scenario, and again, Leo, I'm kind of I'm talking to the guy who knows more about this than I do, but one scenario is not only a flattening of the yield curve, which would be a combination of the Fed uh, conventional policy at the short end of the yield curve, coupled with these other manifestations of markets at the long end of the yield curve, a flattening of the yield curve, or even potentially an inversion of the yield curve, depending on how things go. And that inversion of the yield curve, as you know, Leo is a fairly reliable technical uh, indicator of recession, maybe six months down the road, and would be very much of concern. But just to boil this out in terms of housing, We're going to see some unevenness in mortgage interest rates along the yield curve. That means that we'll probably see more upward movement in arms that are tied to short term treasury rates than we will in conventional conforming rates that are tied to a 10 year treasury.
0: So let me shift the question to concerns that we might be in a housing bubble, right? Everything is priced right now, Uh, let's say for. Not, not quite priced for perfection, but if you looked at you know, what happened to equity markets, if you looked at housing markets, they're priced assuming that the economy is going to be doing really well for the next several years, right? We started getting this turn in equity markets where there's now some skepticism that you know, the, the next few years really will be the boom that people expected it to be. Does the same hold for housing? Are we, is there a risk that we're, uh, we're in a bit of a bubble right now?
1: Well, I guess the way to answer that question, Leo, is to uh, make sure we all understand how we, we define bubbles. And a bubble in the housing market would be a movement in price, a sustained movement in price, typically a sustained upward and then downward movement in price that we could not re- reliably relate to what we call fundamentals where those fundamentals might include fundamentals of the labor market Mm -hmm. or or income or wealth or interest rates or other things that are typical economic fundamental predictors of housing demand, of housing activity, of house prices, et cetera. And so there, I guess the point is to distinguish between the uh, global financial crisis and the subprime crisis of the 2000s and today. In the period of the uh, 2000s, we saw a great deal of credit largesse. And what I mean by that is we saw a whole massive sector of mortgage markets open up and we call that sector the non-prime sector. And that non-prime sector included subprime mortgages and included the whole variety of subprime mortgages. And not only the origination of those mortgages, but the pooling packaging and securitization of those mortgages in what we call the secondary mortgage market, or even the repooling and re-securitization in what we call derivative markets, including the CDO market, et cetera. So that whole apparatus resulted in massive credit largesse, upward movement in prices, and bubble-like features uh, in the housing market when combined with so-called animal spirits and lots of behaviors that were somehow linked in part to, to uh, the housing frenzy, uh, the credit largesse, et cetera. Uh, We don't see, or at least I don't see those factors at play currently. We don't have any of the non-prime sector around anymore. So all mortgages that we originate are originated old school with old school underwriting where people's credit scores are checked and their employment histories are checked and their employment is verified and so on and so forth. Uh, we, we have very uh, conservative securitization markets, all of, all of the, again, air has gone out of that balloon. So there are certainly risks in the housing market and those risks may multiply uh, if we see shocks that are negative to labor markets, if we see people losing jobs, if we see the economy not recover properly, uh, from the pandemic if we see additional uh, difficult variants of the pandemic that that in turn uh, get reflected in other shocks to the economy or other shocks to the labor market but again those are those are more fundamental factors so i'm kind of both agreeing and disagreeing with with uh, um, maybe the question in the sense that, I do see risk in housing markets, but I, those risks may come from other than bubble-like features.
0: Right, so maybe we part. think about it as a shift in the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals might shift very rapidly in terms of a change in uh, the labor market with unemployment rising or uh, a change in uh, people's preferences you know, as people start returning to work uh if they discover that it's harder to move ahead if they're remote all the time that might actually change locational preferences um but you know to your point the fundamentals so far have have helped uh determine the, the rise in housing prices which is different from the great recession where there was really a departure from the
1: fundamentals yes and i you know as i started a few minutes ago I, you know i At this moment, I do not expect the bottom to fall out on housing, markets. far from it. Uh, There is enough fundamental interest in housing. There's enough in the way of demographic shift. There's enough in the way of technological workplace shift that is supportive of housing demand that it would, and there's enough shortage of regulation of housing supply that it would indeed be surprising to see any kind of bottom falling out of the housing market at this moment.
0: So you do some work also on housing affordability. What are your thoughts right now on housing affordability across the US uh, and in the LA metro area specifically?
1: Housing affordability in coastal California is horrible. And it's, it's extremely bad. And it is having all sorts of manifestations and it comes from a myriad of different causes. With respect to those causal factors, first and foremost, we've had a policy in place uh, at least since the mid-1970s that has allowed local jurisdictions um, almost full reign with respect to whatever gets built within the boundaries of a particular Pasadena or a particular Beverly Hills or whatever it is. And for the most part, whoever could restrict growth did. And for the most part, the policies of those jurisdictions really overwhelmingly uh, represented existing residents who wanted to maximize their own property value as well as potential residents who were hoping for some incremental housing supply in those areas. So what I'm saying is that local government land use regulatory constraint as relates to housing production, when added up across jurisdictions, especially popular jurisdictions on the coast of California, has made for very significant and binding housing supply constraint. And just today, as an example of that, the state of California has uh, kicked Los Angeles really hard with respect to LA's plans for incremental housing supply and told LA that if there isn't rezoning of another uh, quarter million homes in LA over the course of the next few months, LA will be denied hundreds of millions of dollars in state and federal funding going to affordable housing. So one of the changes in the political dynamic that we've seen in recent years is the state legislature has gotten involved in the housing affordability story and is pushing much harder than it did, and with teeth, to get local government to supply, to approve the supply of housing. Uh, so when, and the state legislature has been kind of absent from the conversation for decades. But
0: Let's but expand again. on that a little bit, right? So this is one way to make housing more affordable, right? You have this directive from the state to rezone more housing or else Los Angeles won't be able to get uh, additional funding. What are other ways to make housing more affordable to increase the supply of housing uh, in coastal California?
1: Well, we've traditionally talked about densification of, of housing, and there's a lot of new legislation that's been passed that relates to densification that, you know, threaten the very basis of, of what we've taken. To be sacred in single-family neighborhoods, so now you're you're allowed to put up to four units on a single-family lot in in California. That's a new piece of state legislation. That sort of thing. So we've always talked. We've talked, you know, really for for even decades about you know high-density multifamily housing along major transportation corridors. This sort of thing, and we expect that all uh, will continue. Um, so there, there, that's, that, that is the uh, traditional approach. Now, let me mention uh, a less traditional approach that's not typically discussed. And that is to use transportation infrastructure funds and transportation infrastructure development to create access from low land cost areas to major employment centers. In other words, we always talk about more affordable housing in Santa Monica. But Santa Monica is one of the highest land cost areas in the country. It's built out. There's virtually no potentiality for any meaningful increment to housing supply, especially affordable housing supply in a place like Santa Monica or any of the other coastal communities. And, and the you know occasionally we get a project built in one of those areas But I view it as kind of commensurate with pouring a glass of water into the Santa Monica Bay. That's about how much effect it's going to have on the availability of housing. So it's nice. We talk about it. We pat ourselves on the back. And in the end, it doesn't solve the problem. So we need to scale housing supply. We need to get the private sector involved in scaling affordable housing supply and not just depend on funding coming from the state or federal government in the form of tax increment, bond financing, or low-income housing tax credits or whatever. And to do that, we have to open up lands that are vis-a-vis their market price relatively inexpensive. And those lands exist, they in places like Palmdale and Lancaster, other parts of LA County. And so the issue is simply access. Hmm. That's where transportation infrastructure can come in kind of uh, useful. And traditionally, housing developers have leveraged off of public investment in transportation infrastructure. That's like a magic formula for them. Put the housing track next to the new freeway exit, and it's golden and it'll work. So uh, I, I'm encouraging that we use that when we think about uh, access, when we think about transportation infrastructure, we think also about opening tracks of land to housing construction where there's less regulatory constraint, where there are lower land prices and where private developers can get into the act of helping to, to uh, address our housing supply challenge.
0: Let's do it, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion, starting with what's been going on with housing prices to how might Ukraine, uh, the conflict right now in Ukraine affect uh, interest rates and how might, how might that affect housing prices? Uh, And you've brought us full circle in terms of how to address uh, housing affordability in LA. So, uh, really, we're very appreciative of your time and thank you for the insights you've provided.
1: Absolutely. My, My pleasure, Leo, and I'm, as you know, a huge fan of your work at The Forecast. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Stuart.